This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Barry, do you like Barry? I had Stephen Root on the show the other day. Ah, just so interesting and unexpected, sometimes funny, sometimes really, really disturbing. Here, let's listen to a little of the latest episode of Barry. As many of you are probably aware, I have recently become one of the targets of this illegitimate committee. Oh, wait, you thought I meant the HBO show, Barry? No, 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 no. I meant the podcast put out by the representative Barry Loudermilk, congressman from Georgia's 11th congressional district. Why would you think I meant the Bill Hader show? Though it was weird that I mentioned Stephen Root for no apparent reason. Anyway, I have to ask, why does Rep Loudermilk call the committee illegitimate? So you may ask, why do I call the committee illegitimate? So we're not going to play the answer because his answer is what every other Republican not named Cheney or Kinzinger says. No Republicans equal illegitimate. Just like all the votes for decertifying the election, a.k.a. saying it was not legitimate, came from Republicans. You know, let's just jettison the word Republican and call them the legitimate. They're the legitimate party. They will tell you what is and isn't legitimate. Perhaps you heard that Adam Kinzinger isn't seeking re-election. He's not a member of the legitimate party. Otherwise, he'd be too legit to quit. But Loudermilk has earned specific treatment because, as you heard, he is a target of the committee's investigation. But it seems that on January 5th, Loudermilk either gave a tour or showed around some constituents, the office building underneath but separate from the Capitol, and these constituents, as one does on a tour, took pictures. But they were taking strange pictures of strange things, stairwells, metal detectors, and the like. The next day, this one particular guy who had taken the tour was at the January 6th rally making what actually turns out to be something of a demographically accurate cliche. We're coming in like white on rice for Pelosi, Nadler, Schumer, even you, AOC, we're coming to take you out. We'll pull you out by your hairs. Now that tape, we know all this because it was released by the committee, the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Loudermilk denies the tour meant anything, writing, 
The Capitol Police already put this false accusation to bed, yet the committee is undermining the Capitol Police and doubling down on their smear campaign, releasing so-called evidence of a tour of the House office buildings, which I have already publicly addressed, as Capitol Police confirmed nothing about this visit with constituents was suspicious. The pictures show children holding bags from the House gift shop, which was open to visitors and taking pictures of the Rayburn train. The police... Didn't say nothing seemed suspicious, but they just factually asserted that no one on the tour ever appeared in any tunnel that would have led to the Capitol. And this is the part of all of it that I'm not understanding. The allegation is that Loudermilk led something of a reconnaissance tour, but the man who was on the tour and later attended the rally and marched toward the Capitol on January 6th never entered the Capitol. It seems. I mean, there was no evidence that he entered the Capitol. The committee doesn't assert that he entered the Capitol. So how was this reconnaissance tour said to have led to any reconnaissance? No one connects the dots. Maybe they will at a hearing. Prominent Democrats accused Loudermilk of lying about giving a tour on January 5th. He did say I didn't give a tour. He There he was on the video with his constituents in the hallway. I suppose he's going to argue I wasn't giving them a tour. I was just saying hello to them and letting them on their way. Or he could argue this. The committee isn't seeking the truth, only how to effectively blame former President Trump and Republicans for the attacks of January 6th. To which I would submit that maybe blaming President Trump and yes, certain Republicans for the attacks is in fact seeking the truth. Well, at the same time, any firm connection between Congressman Loudermilk his Walsconsin-sourceled constituents, and spycraft that led to a breach. That is all, as of now, in the realm of the yet-to-be-proved. On the show today, a short little spiel to send off Stephen Breyer. The court today released six decisions. It has a couple of dozen more to go, including the big one. But this also means that Stephen Breyer is almost done with his tenure as a Supreme Court justice. Let's look back at the laughs we had, prelude, of course, to the sorrow. The sorrow. But first, Dan Pfeiffer is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. He's a co-host of Pod Save America and author of the new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. He's here to discuss the power that Facebook has over choosing who's elected in the White House and to offer his analysis of the politics behind this particular gun control bill. Dan Pfeiffer, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, 
via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Dan Pfeiffer is a former senior aide to President Barack Obama. He's one of the co-hosts of Pod Save America. He's out with a new book. It brings him back to the gist. The name of the book is Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. Check, mini check, and check. (laughs) How you doing, Dan? (laughs) Good, how are you? I'm well. I want to get into your thesis, but I also have some... um, not gentle, but spirited, but well-intentioned pushback about how important media is. And I think that often, oftentimes pundits uh, get this wrong, but I think you, from the uh, background that you have, might actually agree with a few of my premises. But before I do that, uh, of the three, and they do work interconnectedly, what's the driver and what's the mi- most malicious force? Facebook, by far. Because Facebook is what carries the disinformation, the conspiracy theories, the divisive messaging to people who do not opt into the right-wing media ecosystem. If you're one of the people who chooses to watch Tucker Carlson, for instance, one of that 4 million people or whatever it is, you kind of know what you're getting into. What Facebook is now doing is taking that message, whether it's from Tucker Carlson or from any of this wide array of sort of right-wing media, and then giving it to you and to people who do not opt into it. They're seeing it organically. You have 70% of U.S. adults on Facebook. Four in 10 of those uh, see Facebook as a primary source of news. So you're seeing this information even if you don't opt into it. And it puts a lot of pressure on the individual person to be incredibly media literate and sophisticated to distinguish between opinion and news fact and fiction. And if you're just seeing headlines, you're never going to know what you're seeing. And so I think it is a very dangerous and polluting effect that's operating at a massive scale. But of the three, it's odd in that Facebook is amoral and certainly MAGA is immoral. And I think Fox is pretty much driven by business directives. Or do you not think that Facebook is amoral? I think that Facebook is started out amoral and has made a series of decisions that are about the bottom line that they know are immoral. They have seen the impact of it. So basically it's the equivalent of they have culpability. If the business does not um, plow its sidewalk and you slip, maybe they didn't push you, but they should have known what would have happened. Yes, that's exactly right. And so are the fixes governmental? Are they to for for consumers to rise up? What are the fixes to this situation where, you know, Facebook is, and by Facebook, do you mean more than Facebook or do you literally mean fa- Facebook? I mean- But I'll finish the question. Facebook is the accelerant for all of this misinformation. Of- all of all, no one in social media is, is covered in glory in how this oper- in the how the world works. Facebook, mm-hmm. because of its scale and its lack of accountability, is by, because Mark Zuckerberg cannot be fired is by far the worst in my opinion. Um, but no one is great, right? Like a lot of bad stuff has happened on YouTube. A lot of you know, who Twitter has always been bad and it could get a lot worse soon. But Facebook, because it's reaching so many more people, uh, and because they seem to make some of the work, given a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing, they keep seeming to decide the wrong thing. Um, I think Facebook is by far 
the most culpable in this in, in this world. But what brings it back into the fold, or is it? Do we just need a massive raft of regulations recognizing Facebook for what it is, or at least what you say it is? I think that there, we definitely need, no question, need more regulations, more regulatory scrutiny of Facebook, both in terms of whether it is a monopoly, what are the costs of having one unaccountable person who cannot be fired own three of the largest platforms in the world, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and what that means. There are you know, there have been some ideas out there about, so there's, there's the, I would do two buckets of sort of regulatory things, and I am far from an expert in this, but one is antitrust, right? Are they too big? Do they need to be broken up? That needs to be looked at seriously. I don't know what the right answer is, and it is much more complicated than just break it up. I understand that. The second part is how you deal with the algorithm. And there has been you know, some calls and some legislation out there and proposals about more transparency. Because what people don't really understand is that the Facebook algorithm is making decisions about to what, what to show billions of people every day. That is something that should be have some measure of transparency to it, transparency to government regulators. And then the third idea is one that President Obama also announced in his disinformation speech was, or he floated, I guess, was whether Section 230, uh, which grants legal immunity to publishers for the things people post, whether that should not exist for digital ads, right? Whether that should be revised for digital ads. So if Facebook is, you know, it's one thing to say Facebook is responsible and can be sued for anything that it's 3 billion or whatever users post on a daily basis, but do they have responsibility for things that they are prof specifically profiting off of and then targeting based on the data they have at people? That's a That to me is a very interesting idea that could change at least on the in some ways in which the service operates. Yeah, that's interesting. The first two ideas that you floated, it would seem like, I guess anything's possible, but it would, I don't know if it would uh, stand up to scrutiny to uh, strip specifically Zuckerberg of his status. He, he enjoys the status. He ha the, We have this structure of non-voting shares of stock. That's how he organized his company. Anyone's allowed to organize their company that way. There are pros and minuses. You might not get funding if you do, but he did. I don't know how to change it post hoc um, without specifically targeting one guy. That seems legally problematic. The digital ad thing is interesting because no, you can't hold, well, I don't think you can hold Facebook accountable for what all their users say any more than you could hold the phone company accountable for what their users say. But the fact that someone, even if it's an algorithm, should be uh, signing off on the ads that they run. And again, you're also pointing out that the it's not that you're going to ban ads. It's that they shouldn't enjoy the 230 protections with ads. That I don't know. That might be doable, right? I sort of agree that it may be like, once again, not an expert by any stretch of imagination in corporate law, it does seem probably challenging to take Zucker, to change Zuckerberg's status there. Uh, but there is history in uh, with Microsoft in adjusting how the, you know, when you go through these antitrust situations about adjusting how the business works, right? Where Microsoft was basically shutting out the competition by having, uh, by owning all, basically all the elements of the process. And, is there a question about how Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp operate, and does that have to be changed? Some of that gets is a larger concern about just huge monopolies in this country crowding out in the world, crowding out competition. I don't know that necessarily doesn't necessarily get to the I think at the core of the problem of 
disinformation and messaging on Facebook. And I want to separate two things here as it relates to Facebook. One is the, the concerns about the way, what the impact the company has on all parts of life, whether it's the spread of disinformation around COVID, it is great replacement theory, all the things that are happening there. And then and along with a whole set of different questions about the impact of Instagram on kids and the addictive qualities of it and all of that. And then there is a specific messaging challenge for Democrats, which is the largest media platform in the world, the one where tens and tens of millions of Americans get their news, is dominated by right-wing messaging, both disinformation, conspiracy theories, propaganda, just pure right-wing messaging. And then that that creates a structural challenge for Democrats to get their message out that we have to address, which is sort of what led me to write the book. On, on the show, on Pod Save America, uh, you, your panelists, often, your co-panelists, often make the point that you've literally said Washington me- the Washington media corps is a fetish for balance and the press corps only cares about what's next. And I interpret these remarks as when you're in the middle and the thick of it, it certainly seems that way. But I do think it seems less of the way in 20, that way in 2022 than maybe it did when you were in office, when the press corps really didn't care if Republicans or Democrats had the upper hand. They just wanted to see the food fight. I see the press corps as more saying good guys, bad guys these days than they did before. Maybe that's for good. Maybe that's for ill. But I see it as a bit of a development. Do you agree with me on that? I do agree with that. I think the the period post-election up and through January 6th changed a lot of the approach of a lot of different people. And this is so hard because it's like you can watch – CNN for 24 hours. You can see Jake Tapper very aggressively call out a lie and then see someone else five hours later do a little more traditional he said, she said about stuff. And so, and so there is no, like, it's not a, mo- like, even within news organizations, it's not a monolithic approach. Even within individual people, whether they're writing or speaking, it's not, you know, it kind of goes back and forth. But I do agree that sort of the dangers of, you know, quote unquote, humoring Trump or just sort of reporting these lies became very clear to a lot of people post. Or is it something that not having to do with Trump? I think the local, the recent gun debate is that exactly. I mean, there's, I would say that both sidesism is an, in an absolute minority of the tone of the reporting. It waxes and wanes on guns in my, in my history of watching this. There tends to be a like sort of a more vociferous, maybe even put your thumb on the scale of not having our children killed in schools uh, view from the press in the immediate moment in which it happens. And then once you get into the legislative sausage making, then it becomes a little more uh, both sidesism, I think, um, because they sort of become because the the Republican arguments do not bear up to scrutiny. And there's I don't think there's like. Some people call it out very well. Lots don't. It becomes Democrats say we should ban assault weapons. Republicans say the assault weapon ban would do nothing. But we do know that when we banned the assault weapons not that long ago, we had a lot fewer of these things, right? And so there is sometimes not enough of that uh, fact pushback. But I agree in the moment there tends to be like a a moral response from a lot of people in the in the in the you know traditional media, however whatever term you want to use. Yeah. So, okay. So let's take that. Let me grant that premise. 
Uh, right now, as we talk, we have no details of what this bill that apparently has uh, 10, sen- 10 Republican senators notably signed on to it, okay? But to get there, I think we can both agree that there was a lot of pressure and the media was uh, instrumental in bringing that pressure to bear because they dropped the both sides-ism with, uh, that, with the coverage of that. Do you think at this point forward now, if the media... And, and again, all the caveats, media is so many things and on the same station, they can have totally different tones. But do you think if the media reverts to, okay, now that we're covering the legislative process, we're just going to dutifully report what John Cornyn's ideas are and what, uh, what Roy Blunt's ideas are just as much as we do what uh, Senator Murphy's ideas are. Do you think that really will have an effect on the legislation? So the question is, okay, you're probably right. Now that it's a legislative story, maybe we'll get more both sidesism. At this point now, does it really matter? I don't think the press is playing a huge role in what's driving this. I think what's driving this is Mitch McConnell thinks he's on a glide path to taking the Senate. And he needs to get as many things out of the way as possible. And there definitely was a huge amount of engagement and activism around gun safety proposals after what happened in Uvalde. And so this is the do as little as we can to say we did something. And I look, anything is better than nothing. So I applaud the efforts here. But this is a... Like Mitch McConnell, in my view, is trying to thread the needle of we're going to check a box on saying we did something on guns. It's going to be minor enough that it is not going to bother the gun rights groups writ large, gun activists. And so we can still we can say we did this thing. So we now we can focus on inflation or whatever else we want to focus on and uh, still call the Democrats, uh, you know, as anti-Second Amendment or whatever else. It's sort of it's a I think this is a political calculation for McConnell, which is why you have. 10 senators. It's like just enough to do it, to do something. Although, you know, the final vote, first of all, it could fall apart on the details, but also the final vote could be if it's a fait accompli, this could, you know, pass 67 to 33 or something. Yeah, it could. Absolutely. Absolutely. could. And this is one of those rare moments where there's an alignment of interests where Democrats, I think there was a genuine sense among some, certainly among Democrats, and I think even some Republicans who have worked on these issues before, like Toomey, um, to do something. And I think there is right. an and those, the, and those, by the way, so many of those Republicans who've signed on are retiring anyway. So. Yes, yes. And so they're insulated from the political consequences. The Democrats, it's very much, Democrats view it very much in their interest to have something done, whatever it is, right? So we don't just have to go back to people and say, once again, nothing happened and the Republicans see a need to do it. So Biden's interests and the Republicans are aligned to do something, which is why it's happened. Which And it's, that was a very different calculation than in twenty. 13 after Newtown, where the Republicans did not see it in their interest to do it. Um, and because you needed the House, right? You had a Republican control of the House, and the House is always much, you know, is much further right on these things than the, than the Senate in right. a lot of ways. So you write in the book talking about just media in general and the uh, and the ideological alignment of media. It is true that most reporters, editors, and publishers are more ideologically aligned with Democrats than Republicans. They believe in climate science, support marriage equality, and think making assault rifles easier to buy than cold medicine is probably a, mis- a mistake. They live in New York, D.C., and Los Angeles, the bluest cities. We must acknowledge that the ideological background and geographic location of many in the media lends itself to unconscious bias in terms of what topics receive coverage and whose stories are told. Progressives unwilling to admit this make it easier for conservatives to sow distrust in the media system. All right, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're admitting it. I thought you were going one place. You went another. Here's the place you did go. 
Why might this dynamic benefit the right? I'll play ball. Tell me why. Because two things. One, the the traditional political media values, and this is like a core belief of what being a journalist was, at least pre-2020, if you will, is balance is the most important thing at all. We are objective. We are neutral. We also know that we are personally liberal, or we have these certain views or different Republicans. So we're going to swerve out of our way to prove our conservative bona fides. Like I always used to joke when, we, when, I, when I worked in the White House that if a, if a Republican calls the New York Times, the Washington Post, pick your outlet here, and complains that they are, bi- that they are biased against them, they have a meeting about it, right? And they, they think, how do we adjust for our own personal, our self-conscious personal bias? If a Democrat calls and complains, it's often seen as proof that we are not that biased. And so that there, and that is, that is a something that, as I write in the book, the Republicans have ruthlessly exploited over the years. It is the entire point of Fox News and fair and balance is to ha- bludgeon the press, call them liberal as a way to bully them into doing what they are, what they want them to do. Dan Pfeiffer will be back tomorrow to talk about partisan media, MSNBC versus Fox, and how he and I see our different roles differently. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And now the spiel. Stephen Breyer's last day on the Supreme Court will be when this term ends, and that's in a few weeks. He was noted for his commitment, his intellect, but also in oral arguments for his zany questions. Well, they're regarded as zany. I just think of them as smart. Here was a 2007 case about a patent on gas pedals. I'll read you a quote from a Boston-based patent lawyer that ran in the Boston Globe. This is probably the most important case the Supreme Court has taken on patents in the last 25 years. This could mean a major revolutionary change. Well, Justice Breyer was less impressed with the import of this case, or at least he was just wondering what was so great that this pedal deserved a patent, and so he came up with this analogy. Now, now, to me, I grant you I'm not an expert, but it looks about the same level as I have a sensor on my garage door at the lower hinge, and it's when the car is coming in and out, and the raccoons are eating it. So I think of the brainstorm of putting it on the upper hinge, okay? Now, I just think that, that how could I get a patent for that? And, and that, that, now, that's very naive. That's very naive, but, but, but the, 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 the point is I don't see what we're talking about. Breyer loved pedaling these theories. I go by the pedals. I put it in my bicycle. I start pedaling down the road. Now, we don't want 19 patent inspectors chasing me. 
No, we don't. But Breyer did certainly like chasing a line of reasoning. Well, I mean, suppose the policeman comes along and he sees three people in a car and there is Jack the Ripper driving. Yes, suppose. Or suppose that he, Justice Breyer, were a very specific type of grocer. My own kale shop. I sell fried kale. Uh, and right outside, I want a big picture of kale that lights up. Okay. It's mine. This is my shop. Or suppose, as he once did, that a bank robber were very polite. And Justice Scalia didn't understand why anyone would listen to this polite bank robber. My example was meant to encompass a polite but armed bank robber. (laughs) Breyer's hypotheticals would sometimes be challenged by the other justices, but not for their application to the case in question, but just within the world they created. Here is an instance where a hypothetical set off a mini-debate on taxonomy. No animals in the park doesn't necessarily apply to a pet oyster, okay? Well, it's not and so, yeah. oh, thank you. An oyster in my, vegeta- in my course in biology is an animal. <laughs> All right. Maybe in yours it was a rock or a vegetable or a mineral. <laughs> but but, but, but in regardless, you see my point. And there was a time when Breyer, correctly in my opinion, exploded a lawyer's hypothetical. You want the, you want the Red Sox to compete in selling T-shirts with the Yankees. Is that right? The ability. Yes, okay. I don't know a Red Sox fan who would take a Yankee sweatshirt if you gave it away. The NFL, whose lawyers were making that analogy, lost the case, by the way. Of course they did. What a stupid hypothetical. Interestingly, in a very recent case, Shirtleff v. City of Boston, Breyer used another Yankees Red Sox example. The City of Boston could not disallow a Christian group from displaying their flag on a municipal flagpole. The court held, and Breyer wrote, quote, Boston could not easily congratulate the Red Sox on a victory where the city powerless to decline to simultaneously transmit the views of disappointed Yankees fans. And that is likely to be the final time Stephen Breyer will author an opinion of the court. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pasca is CEO of Peachfish Productions and a proud graduate of the Gene Cousineau School of Acting. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.